Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. We are at the end of a series that we're calling uh, The Gift. We've been in this series for the last few weeks, talking about the gifts uh, that the Magi gave uh, to, to Jesus. Now, we're not really sure where the Magi came from. A lot of folks think they came from Persia, and maybe they did, but they definitely came from the eastern part of the world. And so, the Persia seems to be a likely place for a host of different reasons that I got into in the first week, and I won't really do that here this morning. Um, but, you know, the Magi were, were wealthy, man. These were wealthy guys, and they were very educated. Uh, they played pivotal roles in the king's court. And and they had this really interesting blend. They had a syncretic blend of just, you know, hard sciences, politics, um, you know, uh, some mystical paganism a little bit. They were, they were an interesting bunch, these magi were. And uh, they, they served in the king's court, providing kinds of advice uh, to, uh, to the rulers of, that they were uh, in service to. And they had exposure to the Old Testament. This is how they found the star in the sky. And you say, how do they have exposure to the Old Testament? Well, because for a long time, uh, there, was, there was large Jewish populations in both Babylon and Persia. We know that when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nehemiah, and Esther, that there was Jewish influences in both the Babylonian and the Persian courts. And so it's very likely that these magi had access to the Old Testament. And they had access to knowledge of some Old Testament prophecies talking about a messianic king. And in and, and the fifth part of the, the time period. When Jesus is born in, I don't know, 64 BC, somewhere in there. And at this point in the time, uh, man, the whole Middle Eastern part of the world, the Mediterranean part of the world, they were looking at Israel, looking at Judea with a lot of interest because there was prophecy that there would be a messianic king type figure who would come from that part of the world seizing power. Uh, everyone was looking for him. In fact, the Roman historian Suetonius says that the world, the world being the Mediterranean Mediterranean and eastern part of the world. The world was gazed, looking intently on Judea for men of Jewish descent or Judean descent, he says, would, would seize power. And so if you're the Magi and you're like, hey, like everybody else, we're paying attention to some important figure coming from this part of the world, and you have access to the Old Testament, especially Numbers 24, 17, which talks about a star of, of Jacob or uh, being Israel rising to power in that part of the world. Hey, you're, you're looking for any sign that something significant is going to happen. So we're in a time period right now where the whole world has their eyes fixed on, on Israel and they're looking for this Messiah, this Messianic King. And they happen to see something in the sky because astrology was a part of, of their background. They found something in the sky, very unusual. We don't know what it was. Could have been a, a, the alignment of the planets in a weird way. Could have been a comet. Could have been a star. They describe it as a star because it was so bright and it was so unusual. And they follow this star all the way to Israel itself. And so Matthew chapter 2 has the story of the Magi. And part of the story we'll read here this morning, Matthew 2.9 uh, says this, the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem, and it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was, and when the star, uh, when they saw the star, they were filled with great joy, and they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and bowed down and worshipped him, and they opened their gifts, their treasure chests, and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
So not to bust your nativity up, but when they get to Bethlehem, Jesus is not eight pounds, six ounce sweet baby Jesus in a, in a stable. He's, he's in a home. They're in a house at this point, right? And he's probably you know, 18, 24 months, somewhere in there, a lot of scholars think. So he's, he's a little bit bigger than eight pounds, six ounces, okay? And they get there, and they give him gifts. And all three of these gifts have specific purposes. They, they have roles that Christ would play. And we, we spent time breaking those down. So we started off with frankincense, and we said, hey, with the gift of frankincense, excuse me, I'm sorry, guys. With the gift of frankincense, what we're looking at here is we're looking at Jesus being our high priest. He's our high priest. He brings sacrifices on our behalf to God. He's the mediator. That's what we're really getting at here between God and man. Why? Because the priest's role was to mediate for the people. You would go to the priest. He would sacrifice for you. He would pray for you. He was the go-between between you and God. But Jesus comes, and the author of Hebrews says, and man, he's now our mediator between God and man. And so now, hey, you don't have to go to me. You don't have to go and say, Pastor, can you pray to God this, the X, Y, and Z for me? You can do it yourself. You go to Christ yourself on your own whenever you want to and pull your heart out to him. He hears your heart's cries and he mediates between God for you on your behalf. He is our go-between for us. But he also lived a life that, that he can relate to. You know, Hebrews says he sympathizes with our weaknesses, meaning this, that Jesus understands what your life is like. He, he gets it, man. He's been there when, when you were struggling. He's been there when you were having a hard time. He knows what temptation is like. He knows what heartbreak is like. He knows what everything you're walking through is like because he has lived this life that you have lived. Life is tough, right? It's difficult. It's not rosy. It's, it's got so many ups and downs. I don't know how you get through life without Jesus. I don't know how you do it. I, 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 maybe you figured it out. I, I don't know how it happens. But Christ has been there and done that, and we serve a God who understands our weaknesses and our struggles. And then week number two was you know, last week we had we, with the myrrh. And myrrh is what is used to embalm the dead with. And so Jesus, with that gift of myrrh, we're talking about him being that sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world, right? He was the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, where he is he, 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 he takes our place satisfying the wrath of God once and for all. And so now what God does is because you've placed your faith in Christ, once you say yes to Jesus, because he's taken your place, you're still guilty of sin, you still have wrong in your life, you're still, you deserve all the punishment. But because you have Jesus, God pardons you from that sin. Why? Because Christ took your place. He took the punishment. He satisfied the wrath of God. And so when God looks at you, you're righteous, you're holy, you're forgiven, you're free, not because of anything you did, but because of everything that Christ did for you. And so you have to place your faith in Christ, but he did everything for you, and yet you can receive the benefits that God has because of what Jesus did for us. And so our hope and our freedom and our healing is all in the suffering servant that is Christ. And that leaves us with one more gift, right? And this gift you don't need an introduction for. I mean, we, we all know what gold is, is all about. <laughs> you, may, you may not understand frankincense. A lot of us don't know myrrh, but we definitely know gold. We all know gold and we see it, right? Gold is one of those things that, that is uh, incredible, has incredible value. It's very accessible. Uh, you could buy as much gold as you want. The last I checked, gold is somewhere around the neighborhood of about $2,000 an ounce. So, I mean, $2,000 is, is pretty high for gold historically, but nevertheless, like if you want it, you can go get it. 
day. It's, anybody can, can get as much gold as they would like. But in Jesus' day, that wasn't so. Gold was inaccessible. Only kings and the elite and nobility, like they had gold, but a regular Joe couldn't get that. You know, if, if you're learning about gold for the very first time, uh, when I was a kid, I always thought gold, you know, it, it came from all the tourist traps in Pigeon Forge, right? You go up there and mine for gold. You can get some gold, man. Maybe, maybe you get a few gems that, that cost a few cents. I don't know. But as a kid, I was, I was shocked. Remember the first time I learned about gold? It's supposed to be shiny and valuable and important. And I learned that gold comes from a mineral deposit like this right here. And I was like, wow, that, that doesn't look very impressive to me, <laughs> right? It's deep in the ground, and you pull it out, and it has all this impurity in it. I mean, you have to really, to get the value of gold, you have to take it out of the deposits. And so what they do is they mine the gold, and they smelter it, right? They filter the, 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 the stuff out, and you have to melt everything down, and then all the impurities get filtered out of the gold, and then the gold gets put into whatever cast it is, whether it's a ring or a bar or whatever. You put it in whatever cast and form you want gold to take, but you have to siphon all the junk out. By the way, another message for another day, that's what God does for our lives. Oh man, I'm cracking again, guys. That's what God does for our lives. He takes us, and, and he, he takes our lives, and through testing, we don't like testing, but through testing and suffering and struggle, God breaks away the impurities. God siphons away some things that, that are not beneficial to us so that what is left in our lives is what? A more pure form of who he's called us to be, you know? So gold comes from this unlikely place, yet it has value that causes men to go mad and kill each other for it. It causes men to, you know, just, just to go crazy with jealousy. Gold represents, in its rawest form, it represents, I think, everything kind of wrong with humanity when you think about it, right? Wealth, power, greed, all those types of things, you know, that humanity can be very negative and that we have done some pretty terrible things too. Only kings kind of wield that power. Only kings possess a lot of that power. And yet the Magi give this gift of gold to Jesus. Why? Because they acknowledge his kingship. They acknowledge that what they're witnessing, who they're in the presence of, is an important kingly figure. Writing about Christ's return. So he's already come. And Paul's saying, hey, he's going to come again. Writing about his second return, Paul says this, 1 Timothy 6.15, at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed uh, and, and, and only uh, almighty God, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. The king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Jesus is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. There's no other more powerful way for Paul to describe who Christ is than probably this one right here. This is pretty, pretty important. Greater than Caesar, greater than governors, greater than any form of authority we know is Jesus, King Jesus. There's nobody like him. He holds the universe in his hands. He has all power and authority. There's nobody greater than Jesus. And just as gold comes from an unlikely source, so too came this messianic king. He came from a place that was not where you would expect. He was a messiah unlike any other. In the first century, the messianic prophecies were super popular. I mean, everybody was reading them. People were, were think about it like this. 
I don't know if, you, if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you had the, the, the Left Behind book series. Remember those? The Left Behind series came out. People, people read those books like crazy. It was nuts. It, it, and there was this big craze about like the end of the world. 2012 or 2012, we were all going to die in 2012. The, the Mayans had it right, guys. We were all like, there have been pockets of time where humanity obsesses with the end. Well, there was this kind of time when Christ was born. In this day and age, when Jesus was born, they were obsessed. They were Hey, there is a Messiah coming who will set us free. He will conquer, uh, the, the, not conquer, but defeat the Romans. He will come in and just unite all the Jewish people again. Like that was that, that prophecy was everywhere. People were looking for him. The Romans weren't as cruel as the Greeks were, but they become pretty oppressive. In fact, there was at least three major claims. Three major claims during the time of Christ's birth to his, to his death of people claiming to be the Messiah that ended in the deaths of not only the, the, the person who claimed it, but all their followers. So when Jesus is crucified, there's a reason why the, the apostles hide. When he's arrested, they take off. They don't want to end up like everybody else. Like, hey, we thought he was the Messiah. He's on the cross. We're next. So they're hiding for a reason because all the other followers of guys who claim to be a Messiah have been executed. They don't want to have that same fate. But there was never a time in Israel history where they were so ready for the Messiah than that point in time. And yet, the Jewish leadership of the day missed it. They missed it. Now, why they miss it? Well, because there was this idea, there was this belief that the Messiah, this, this anointed figure, would come from either one of two places. Either he would come from the, the lineage of the priests and be a high priest, or he would come from the lineage of David and be a king. He's got to be a priest or a king, or maybe he's both. But, but he's, he's, he's going to come from a place where we would expect him to come from. He would, he would come in and be the arbiter of God's truth and word, and he would unite all of Israel. Not just like part of Israel, the whole thing. All 12 tribes will go back to the time of King Saul and David and Solomon. Like that, he'll unite the kingdom back to its glory days. They're looking for that kind of figure. But no one thought... He'd be born in poverty. Like nobody thought he'd be born you know, in, in a stable because there was no room in the home they were staying in. Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem and there's no room in this house they're staying in to have, uh, have a baby. So they go into the stable and the Messiah's born in a stable. He's placed in a manger, a feeding trough where, where, where livestock feed from. Nobody expected him to, to grow up in this town that was very insignificant. You know, Nazareth is, is for, in a figurative way, a town with no stoplights. I, I'm from Six Mile. I, I love my little town. And we have less than a thousand people that live there. There's no stop sign. There's no stoplight. There's cows. We got a lot of cows. We got a lot of horses. Sometimes the cows bust loose and are on the road, which is really cool. Uh, and I think in the most sarcastic way, is that cool? Uh, but it is there. Like, that's where he, he comes from a town like that. And so, when, you know, Nathaniel was one of the disciples. When, when he learns that Christ is from Nazareth, he says, man, Nazareth, can anything great, like what in the world's come from Nazareth? In the sense that, you know, if you're going to change the world, if you're going to be an important figure, are you coming from a little tiny town, like Six Mile? Can you imagine the most powerful figure in human history coming from a town that, of like 600 people? Probably not. You're probably thinking, dude, this guy's going to come from New York City with the important private league education, you know, Harvard, Oxford, like this great, incredible background. No, not from a little cattle town somewhere. That's where Christ comes from. No one thought the Messiah would come from that direction. No one thought this Messiah who was the arbiter of truth and God's law would hang out with hookers. 
and prostitutes, right? And touch lepers and invite tax collectors into his home. Nobody likes tax collectors today. No one liked them back then, all right? They're not popular. No one thought that he would have political extremists. Simon the Zealot, who's a follower of Jesus, he's an extremist. Who are these zealots, by the way? These guys, the zealots believed in violent resistance. They had assassinations. They were saboteurs. They were domestic terrorists. And yet, he's a follower of Jesus. No one thought he'd hang with rabble-rousers like that. Nobody thought he'd have guys who were rejected by the Pharisees follow him. In his day, you wanted your son to be a Pharisee. They couldn't be a priest because you have to be from the tribe of Levi to do that. But you could be a Pharisee. You could be a rabbi. And if you could do that, you were set. You'd have a home. You'd have a living. You wouldn't struggle. Everyone wanted their kid to be one of these guys. But they only took the best of the best, man. And so what does Christ take? He takes James, Andrew, John, these guys who were the rejects, who didn't make it. He takes them on as his followers. They, they couldn't cut it. But he brought them in, and they became followers of Jesus. He didn't go to the seminaries. He didn't go to the grad schools. He took the guys who couldn't cut it, who were rejected. He wasn't supposed to confront the Pharisees with their hypocrisy. Hey, you guys are looking at all the external stuff. You say all the right things. You say all the right prayers. You got the right look going on. The problem is this. It's not the outside part of the dish. It's the inside part you better clean. It's the part nobody sees. It's your personal life, your heart, your thoughts. How is that? Because that's what makes somebody holy and righteous. Not what you do on the outside. It's where your spirit's at. He confronts them with their sin. He wasn't supposed to do that. Messiah's not supposed to do that kind of thing, right? He wasn't supposed to make room for the Gentiles to enter into God's presence. They get into the temple and they, and they, they, they find all kinds of buying and selling happening in the temple uh, courtyard. And what does Christ do? He chases the money changers out. And so many folks think, well, it's because they're buying and selling. No, that's not the problem. You have to buy and sell sacrificial, you know, if the sacrificial animals, rams, bulls, that kind of thing. You got to exchange money. Because the temple had a certain temple currency. You couldn't use any old currency you wanted. You would exchange the coins to use that. The problem was that there was one place for non-Jewish people to worship God called the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't enter into the temple itself, but there was this one outer court they could come into and worship God and experience him. And it was this court that the Jewish leadership set up all of the currency and the buying and the selling. What were they doing? They were preventing folks who were not Jewish from coming in and worshiping God. Can you really get alone with the Lord and experience the presence of God and worship with what? With, with, with cattle and sheep and goats and doves and all kinds of laughing and yelling and talking and currency falling on. Can you, is, that, is that a little bit difficult to kind of concentrate? Probably, right? Like when we come in and we worship God, we have the worship band playing, but we don't have a whole lot going on, right? We're trying to get in alone with the Lord. So Christ comes in and he goes, man, listen, my house is a house for all nations. It's for all people. Everybody's welcome to encounter God. And the one place where the people who aren't Jewish can worship, you're preventing it from happening. Get out. And he kicks them out. The Messiah's not supposed to do that, but he does. He wasn't supposed to come into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's supposed to come in on a horse. A horse is a king, a conqueror, the victor, right? A donkey, man, that's a symbol of peace and humility. He comes in with palm branches and shouts of Hosanna, the complete opposite of what they thought the Messiah would come into. He wasn't supposed to stand trial for false crimes in the kangaroo court and then die a humiliating, dishonorable death of a traitor on a cross between two criminals. No one expected their Messiah 
to end up like that. And no one expected him to, to rise again three days later. Three days later, he would rise. No one expected him to be seen by hundreds of people after his death. No one expected this movement to change the course of human history. See, Jesus is a king like none other. And, and the crazy thing about Jesus is a lot of folks like him. A lot of people like Jesus. They like his teachings. They like his morality. They, they like Jesus, but they can't get behind a few things. It's hard to get behind him being the son of God or the Messiah or a king. It's tough for folks to do that. But Jesus doesn't really leave an option. The way he lived his life the claims he made, because he claimed to be a king, he claimed to be the son of God, right? He claimed to be the Messiah. So the way he lived his life and what he said, he kind of pigeonholes you. So once you're exposed to Jesus and what he taught and who he was, how he lived, what he claimed, he forces you, you can't ignore it. It's, hey, he either is or he isn't, right? He kind of makes you decide. Either he is what he claims to be or he's not who he claims to be. And so when you're faced with that question, is he a king or not, there's a few ways you can respond. One of the ways we can respond is, is kind of like King Herod. We can respond like him. You know, Herod is not actually a, a king. He's more of a provincial governor. But King Herod was a paranoid dude. He was crazy. He was nuts. He wanted to be a real king. He wanted power so badly that Herod actually killed his own wife and sons because at different points of his life because he was afraid that they were trying to seize power. So when you read the Christmas story, when the Magi come to Jerusalem, and they're coming to Jerusalem because the star's there, and they're thinking, hey, political, religious capital of the Jewish people, it makes sense. The Messiah would be born here. Let's go there. So they arrive, and they hear, the people hear, the Magi have come, and they're looking for a king. If you read the text, it says, all Jerusalem trembled. Why are they trembling? Because they know how crazy Herod is. He killed his own wife and sons. Who was he going to kill next to hold on to his grip on the throne? And so Herod learns that Jesus has been born as a Messiah, as some kind of king, but he's not here. He's not in the palace where they expect. He's not in Jerusalem where they expect. Where is he? And so Herod devises the plans. Like, all right. You magi, you wise men, you, you find out where he is. My priests are going to come over here and answer your question. They do. The priests say, hey, he's going to be born in a little town called Bethlehem, a little town outside the city called Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be. And so what does Herod do? Hey, when you guys get there, come back and report to me where this, this, this king is at. Because I want to give him an offer that he can't refuse, right? Like he's, he's, he's going to eliminate the threats. That's what he wants to do. Eliminate all the threats he has to his throne and to his power. And, and, and I think many people today, when they look at Jesus and this claim, is he a king? Is he the son of God? Hey, there's a lot of folks that look at Christ in a way as a threat. Not to like power, but a threat to your way of life. Do I have to change? What do I have to change? I kind of like how I'm doing some things. I don't know if I want to give that up. And so what's the response? The response ends up being the same response that Herod had, and people oppose him as king in their lives. It's like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I don't need, I'm, I'm, I don't really need Jesus. I'm pretty good. I, I, I believe in God. I believe in a higher power. But I really want to, I don't want to change this part of my life. I like doing things this way. So I, I believe in him and he, okay, great, but I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep living like that and practicing this and that's what I'm going to do. I, I don't need religion, right? 
Everybody needs that. I definitely don't want that. I don't need some church telling me what to do with my life and how to live. And, 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 which, by the way, I agree with those last two points for sure. I think one of the sad things is, is a lot of bad and evil has been done in the name of God and, 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 and Jesus. To the point where you have conf- people are confusing religion with relationship, following Christ with an organizational set of do's and don'ts and laws. I follow Jesus, and I, my life has been changed, not because of a church or because of religion, because I believe in the word of God as truth, because I align myself as best I can with what the word of God teaches me, because I want to allow the spirit of God to lead me. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ who changes who I am, and it's continuing to change who I am, and that's why I do what I do. It's got nothing to do with a church or an organization or an institution. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're like, hey, you know what, I, I'm, that, that's kind of me. Like, I've kind of struggled with that. I struggled with ex- accepting Christ because, honestly, I don't want some organization telling me what to do. Or I've struggled with Jesus because, th- to be real, like, I, I, just, I, I don't want to change a few things in my life I'm afraid may change. I kind of like this. I kind of like the, the belief system that I have, and I don't really want to alter that very much. It's tough to change. But I will tell you this, that when Jesus enters into your life, there'll be nothing but change. He doesn't leave you how he found you. He changes you into who he's calling you to be. There's this rich man who who had all kinds of stuff that he was looking forward to, 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 to doing with Jesus. He kept the commandments. He had all kinds of wealth, all kinds of prestige, all kinds of power. And he wants to be a follower. And so Jesus says, sure, you can do that. But here's one thing you have to do first. He said, well, what's that? What do I have to do? And he said, the first thing you have to do, take all the wealth you have and sell it. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Now, that's not an indictment on wealthy people. He's not saying, hey, if you're wealthy, you can't be a follower of Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you've done everything right. You've kept the commandments. You love God. Hey, there's one thing holding you back. Your heart isn't truly with the Lord. Your heart is with all the stuff. It's with the wealth and the power and your prestige. That's where it's at. If you can let go of all of those things there, then you can come follow me. You know what he does? He walks away saddened and heartbroken because he can't change. There's a lot of folks that they come up up to Christ and say, you know, I want to follow you. I'm there. Let's go all in. And they're confronted with this reality that there's some things in my life that I'll have to change. And it's hard for them to do it. It could be any number of things, but it's hard for them to get to a place where they can change. They walk away saddened. They can't let go of some things inside of them to truly be a follower of Jesus. If you find yourself resisting and opposing Christ as king today, my question to you is why? What is it that you can't change? What is it in your life, in your heart, that's holding you back, that's keeping you from going all in? You know, what has such a strong grip on your life that you can't allow God to change you from the inside out? 
Another response that, that you can have to Christ as being king is reflected in how the Sanhedrin treated Jesus. The Sanhedrin responded to Christ like this. The, these are the leading priests, okay, of, of, the, of the day. These are the guys who, they knew the word of God by memory. They could, they could quote scripture to Christ. These are, these are these guys here. And they respond, you know, in, in, in a different format. They would use the, the law and the word to actually fight against Jesus. So Jesus would actually do some things and minister, and they would say, yeah, but the word of God says this right here, trying to quote it to Christ, hoping they can catch Christ in a trap, right? Remember, it's the priests who confirm where the Messiah was going to be born. They're the ones that tell Herod it's in Bethlehem, because the prophet Micah says it's going to be in that place, which begs the question, right? If they understood the scriptures, if they knew that Bethlehem was where the Messiah was going to be born, okay, why didn't they at least go check it out for themselves? Why didn't they actually just go kind of, okay, we think this is where it's at. This could be the guy. Why don't we go with you just kind of see? Why didn't they do that? And, and there's probably a few reasons, but I'm going to submit one reason to you here this morning that I think played a role in that. I think it's because they dismiss Christ as king. But it's dismissing. They dismiss him as king. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, th they've heard it all before. They've heard it before. They've heard all the prophecies. They know the scriptures very well. They can quote it from memory. Multiple folks would come forward claiming to be the Messiah and the follower, you know, the, 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 the Jewish king. And, and, and all the revolts they led failed. All their followers were executed. A lot of folks had done that. What was so different about this guy, Jesus? What's so different about him? What makes him different than all the other folks who came before claiming to be the Messiah? Uh, you know scripture, big deal. Okay, we know scripture too. What makes you different? It's this dismissive kind of attitude. And I, I can just tell you this, man. This one affects Christians more than anything. A lot of Christians have a dismissive response to Jesus. So yeah, I've heard it before. <laughs> I've heard all this before. The longer you're a follower of Christ, here's the danger you run into. This is important, especially if you're, if you're here this morning and you're kind of a new believer, you should, we're going to alert you to this one. The longer you're a follower of Jesus, the more kind of at risk you, you become of being numb to everything. Well, I'm, I know the stories. I grew up with it. I've heard all of it. I got it. God, Jesus, he loves me. Give my life to him. The end, I'm good. Like that, that's the attitude of a lot of people. There's the excitement of, of individuals who turn their lives around. And it's like, man, this is so great. Did you know so-and-so gave their life to Christ? Here's their story. Isn't it really cool? So, yeah, yeah, but you know, six months from now, they're going to get back to where they were at. Like, is it real this time? I don't know. Like, that, that kind of cynicism begins to infect people if they're, if, they're, if they're numb, if they dismiss Jesus. Well, it's just an emotional decision they made. It wasn't, they weren't really into it. it they were kind of caught up in the moment, and they, they made this change, right? I think the priests represent dismissive cynicism more than anything. It's easy to be cynical in a cynical world. It's, that's not hard to do. But being cynical, man, will rob you of the joy that God wants to bring to your life. It will cause you uh, to become spiritually lazy, I think, to the point where you just don't put much effort and emphasis, man, into spiritual disciplines in your life that can really change and alter who you are. It'll lead you to say, you know what, I've done my time, buddy. 
I've served faithfully for many years, and you know I'm gonna kind of sit this one out. Somebody else can do it. I'm I'm, I'm done. You know, it's somebody else is gonna have to step up here. I've I've, I've played my part. Can I just tell you? Uh, and I said it a few weeks ago. I'll say it again today. Can I just tell you this, man? As long as you're on this planet, as long as you're breathing oxygen, God has purpose for your life. God has a reason for you. You have gifts. You have abilities. You have knowledge. You have wisdom. You have network relation. Whatever it is you have, but God is gonna use you until He calls you home. You've got a purpose. Don't every, nobody should ever have the attitude, especially at Radiant Church, we should never have the attitude of, I've done my time, I'm out. No, sir. We haven't done our time until we're in his presence. Then, then we're out. But until that time, you got something to offer. you got something God wants to do through you. you know, until that time, we don't dismiss people whose lives are being changed. We don't dismiss folks who, who make a decision to say, I'm going to follow Christ. We don't say, well, you know what, I'll see where they'll be in a few months. No, 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 no. If that's your concern, come alongside that person and coach them, mentor them, disciple them, right? So that way they continue along the path that God's calling them to. Don't have a dismissive response to what God is doing. Don't be cynical, man. Don't downplay change. Don't let that rob you of your purpose that God has for your life. Don't be numb to the things of God. Man, please don't be numb. And this is a tough time of year, too, because, boy, this time of year, it, it gets tough. There, there's an old thing with pastors that the hardest messages to preach every year are Easter and Christmas. How many different ways can you preach that Jesus died and rose again, that he came as a... How many different ways can you preach that? There's a lot of guys, they, pastors get cynical. Uh, so far, I have not. I've, but I'm young. But so far, it's been exciting to me still. I hope I never lose that excitement. Because the day I lose that excitement, I got to search my own heart. Something's not right. This story never gets old. Man, changed lives never get old. Man, the, the truth of God never gets old. Don't find yourself being dismissive and numb to the presence and power and things of the Lord. Don't do that. Because if you do, you know what's going to happen? You're going to miss key moments and key opportunities that God will bring to your life. Some of those moments and opportunities, by the way, will look entirely different than what you're thinking they're going to look like. And if you're not really in tune to the Spirit of God and the presence of God, you'll miss it. Don't do that. Third response this morning. Here's the third response. We can worship Christ. He's our king. We can, we can oppose him. We can dismiss him. But we can also worship him. That's the third response. I don't know if the Magi fully understood who he was. You know, I, I said it earlier. These, these guys were not followers of the Lord, okay? But they understood Christ to be king. Did they know to the fullest extent what that meant? I'm not sure. But nevertheless, they worship him as you worship a king, as you would, as you would acknowledge a, a, a king. Jesus said, man, he, he's God incarnate. He is king of the universe, right? They showed respect. They showed awe. They showed reverence to Christ because they were in the presence of the king. When we are in the presence of God, I can just tell you something. We, 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 got, we should emulate what the, the Magi did. You know, they, didn't, they didn't bring Christ the, the Dollar Tree gold gift. You know what I'm saying? They didn't go Dollar Tree, pick up the gold gift, and bring it. Hey, here, here it is, man. Save me like 10 bucks. Don't you love folks who love to brag about how much money they saved? I saved all kinds of money. Here's your gift, by the way. It makes you feel really good, right? Like, Jesus brought uh, Dollar Tree gold. No, they, they gave him the best they had to offer gold, frankincense, more. It was the best that they had, the very best. 
King Herod had said, hey, come back and warn me uh, about, this, uh, about this, uh, this Messiah, and I'll come and respect him too. Well, the Magi don't do that. They go back home a different way because an angel comes to them in a dream and says, don't go back to Herod. So what happens? Herod gets angry. He orders all the boys who were two and under to be massacred in Bethlehem. Why? He's, he's holding on to power. He's afraid of his own power being challenged. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus escape. And they escape because an angel comes to Joseph in a dream. He goes, hey, there's a threat, and you need to go to Egypt until that threat passes. How do they get there? If they're in poverty, how do they get to Egypt? Well, a lot of scholars believe it's these gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which financed that journey to Egypt and financed their stay there and back home again, which makes sense. They didn't give Jesus anything cheap. They gave him the very best that they had, the best they had to offer. And I just wonder today, is our approach to God marrying that? Do we give God our best? Do we give him the best that we have, you know? If we're giving God everything that we, that we have to offer, is it, is it the best we have? Think about this for a moment. You know, God's blessed you, right? Maybe he's blessed you great. It's been a tough year for a lot of people. Perhaps God's blessed you, though, in a pretty big way. Are you giving back to the Lord? Are you giving back to him with resources and finances? Are you giving back to God in time? Giving back to God in your ability and your gifts and your talents, right? Are you taking time out of your day? I know our time is it's the most valuable asset that we have is time. You know why? You can't make more of it. So your time is more important than anything. And we're all busy. And being a, being the parent of three kids, you know, like I can tell you, man, like my life, my world's crazy right now. It's nuts. But if time was our most valuable asset, am I spending time with the Lord? Or am I just kind of like, hey, you know what? I'm going to fit in five minutes before I go to sleep. Jesus, you're out on the couch. You're just gone. You're snoring. I don't know. If it's me, I would want to do my best to give Christ time of my day that I've carved out specifically for him, intentionally thought through. At Christmas, the king and kings came, right? The, 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 the king who told the oceans, hey, this is how far you got to go. Here's how the magnetic field's going to work with the moon and the gravitational pull. And so the, there's going to be high tide and low tide. Here's how it's going to work. That king came at Christmas time, man. The king who created electromagnetic pulses that surge through your neurological system and tell your fingers when to wiggle and move. He came at Christmas time, right? This king who left the splendor and glory of heaven, man, he came and gave all that he had. And so my question is like, what are you bringing to him? What kind of worth are you assigning him? I want to take you to a, a passage before we get out of here real quick. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 6. Paul says this, Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. But he laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like men. And he humbled himself even further, going so far as actually to die a criminal's death on the cross. This king gave up voluntarily his position of power and authority and honor, his throne, to be with us. He chose to come not to a royal family, not to a priestly family. He came to an impoverished family. He chose to reach those who were despised and rejected by their culture and spiritual leadership of the day. He chose to, to come to these guys that nobody wanted around. But let me just put this in context for you so you kind of get a feel for what it would be like here today. 
King Jesus, right? He came for those who couldn't get it right. He came for those men who were messed up financially, for sure. Can't get their house in order. He came for the people whose first and maybe second marriage didn't work out. And now they're in a bad place again. He came for the people who used the wrong substances to get an escape. Whether it's to get high or to kind of come back down. They're trying to escape all the pain and struggle they had. He came for those guys too. He came for those who find meaning and purpose in all the wrong places because they're desperately trying to find why am I here and why does my life matter? He came for those guys. But he also came for people who were full of green. He came for people who were the political extremists. He came for people who misrepresented God and his word. He came for people who were oppressors, but also those who are oppressed. He came for those who have prejudicial viewpoints. And he treated, he came for those who, who treat other people differently than how they're treated today. He came for the person who doesn't care. He came for the person who, who feels indifferent, who has all kinds of knowledge, but can't connect the dots. He came for the person who doesn't believe in any kind of spiritual power or truth or even the existence of God at all. He came for the person whose heart is as good as gold and the individual whose actions are so depraved, they look like they're the lowest form of humanity. He came for them. This king gave everything that he had, and he held nothing back, so that we might have hope. And we might find freedom, which brings us to a place of purpose and meaning in the kingdom of God. So what does God the Father do? Well, he responds this way. Look at verse number nine. Yet it was because of this that God raised him up from the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus, what? Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We're talking the whole realm of spiritual authority here. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not not the big guy. He's not the eight pound, six ounce, sweet baby Jesus. He's the righteous king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of glory. He's the king who heals the sick and opens blind eyes and deaf ears. He's the king who strengthens the weak and the king who sets the oppressed free. He's the king who heals the broken and the king who provides peace in your time of trouble. He is the king who is light in a dark world. He is the prince of peace and the lamb of God, the alpha and omega the first and the last. He is the resurrection and the life. And in his presence, all of hell trembles at his name and his sight. Death tried to stop him. The grave couldn't hold him. He is the king of kings with victory. And we worship this king at this time of the year. He is the king who deserves our best. Guys, come on up. The best that we have to offer. When Jesus was born, the king had come. But hope, and we'll talk more about hope next week on our Christmas Eve service, but hope, boy, it had a name. And his name was Jesus. He's our king. Every person watching and listening right now, every person in the room, you've heard about Jesus. You've been exposed to him as king of kings and lord of lords. And so the ball from this point forward is in your court. How do you respond to that? Will you oppose him, right? 
We insist on living your own way and doing your own thing. Will you live a life in opposition to who he is? Will you live in cynicism? Will you dismiss him as king? Yeah, I've heard it before. I've been there before. I've been to a thousand of these types of things. It's whatever. Are you going to dismiss him today? Or will you worship him with reverence? Reverence is an old school word. But reverence means that we have a deep respect for something. In fact, if, to take it a point further, to revere something is to have a healthy fear. You revere the king. Why? The king can take your life. So you revere the king. You acknowledge his power and position and authority. With Jesus, you acknowledge power, position, authority. We revere him. Chronicles of Narnia is a fantastic book. And in the book, if you read the book, there's this great scene where Lucy asks about Aslan the, the, the lion. And she asks Mr. Beaver, is he good? Okay. You know, is he safe? And, and so the beaver says, well, you know, is he good? Well, of course he's good. He's, but is he safe? He's a lion. Right? Think about that. God is good, but God's power and authority and who he is. No, I don't know. Like, you know, safety, he can do a lot, but he is good. So what do we do? We revere him. We have reverence, a healthy respect, even healthy fear of who he is. And we do that with our worship. You know, worship, the word worship means to assign worth. When you come in and you worship God, I know it can be a tough week. I'm battling kind of being, if you, you probably could tell this morning, I'm battling feeling kind of cruddy <laughs> right now. Like, it's just, it's, it, it is, I've had a crazy week. We had a crazy night last night with some health issues going on in my wife's family. It's just, it's, it's, I'm tired. I'm not feeling great. It's been rough. And we can come in this week and we might come in feeling the same way this morning. And you start to worship like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, I'm kind of, <laughs> we got to do this. Just skip to the, pre the, the preaching and go home, right? But here's the thing. If worship is assigning worth to something, then when I come in and I worship God, I, I better bring my A game. I, I better bring something of value. I better give God everything I have. My focus and attention shouldn't be on what I'm dragging in. It really should be on who Jesus is. But as I'm singing the lyrics, I shouldn't think about, you know what? He might, boy, Z sounds pretty good over there, but I don't, I don't know. He, he got off on that. No, that shouldn't be where your focus is at. Your focus should be on, man, all hail King Jesus. What does that mean? Hey, I'm giving my best to the King. My focus should be on what I'm singing. My focus should be on the lyrics. Our, our worship. Someone one time asked me, we were starting Radiant Church, they asked me this question, do you believe in deep worship? I have no clue what that is. What in the world? Their version of deep worship was, we just sing forever, you never preach. Okay, well, that's not scriptural for one. Number two, deep worship, if you want to call it that, has nothing to do with how long you're singing. It's got everything to do with what is the quality of your worship. Are you focused? Is your heart right? Am I assigning God everything? Am I giving him all of the worth I can muster? Because that's where worship's found. And as we worship at this church from this day forward, 
as your pastor, I'm telling you, you better bring, every time you're in this building, the best you have to offer in your focus and attention and heart as you assign the greatest worth you can muster to the God who deserves it. Can we stand on Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.